Chapter Two of the Trespasser. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Martin Geeson. The Trespasser by D. H. Lawrence. Chapter Two. Siegmund's violin, desired of Helena, lay in its case beside Siegmund's lean portmanteau in the white dust of the lumber-room in Highgate. It was worth twenty pounds, but Beatrice had not yet roused herself to sell it. She kept the black case out of sight. Siegmund's violin lay in the dark, folded up as he had placed it for the last time, with hasty familiar hands, in its red silk shroud. After two dead months the first string had snapped, sharply striking the sensitive body of the instrument. The second string had broken near Christmas, but no one had heard the faint moan of its going. The violin lay mute in the dark a faint odour of must creeping over the smooth soft wood. Its twisted withered strings lay crisped from the anguish of breaking, smothered under the silk folds. The fragrance of Siegmund himself, with which the violin was steeped, slowly changed into an odour of must. Siegmund died out even from his violin. He had infused it with his life, till its fibres had been as the tissue of his own flesh. Grasping his violin, he seemed to have his fingers on the strings of his heart, and of the heart of Helena. It was his little beloved that drank his being and turned it into music, and now Siegmund was dead. Only an odour of must remained of him in his violin. It lay folded in silk in the dark, waiting. Six months before it had longed for rest, during the last nights of the season, when Siegmund's fingers had pressed too hard, when Siegmund's passion and joy and fear had hurt too the soft body of his little beloved, the violin had sickened for rest. On that last night of opera, without pity Siegmund had struck the closing phrases from the fiddle, harsh in his impatience, wild in anticipation. The curtain came down, the great singers bowed, and Siegmund felt the sputtering roar of applause quicken his pulse. It was hoarse and savage and startling on his inflamed soul, making him shiver with anticipation, as if something had brushed his hot nakedness. Quickly, with hands of habitual tenderness, he put his violin away. The theatre-goers were tired, and life drained rapidly out of the opera-house. The members of the orchestra rose, laughing, mingling their weariness with good wishes for the holiday, with sly warning and suggestive advice, pressing hands warmly ere they disbanded. Other years Siegmund had lingered, 
unwilling to take the long farewell of his associates of the orchestra other years he had left the opera house with a little pain of regret now he laughed and took his comrades hands and bade farewells all distractedly and with impatience the theatre awesome now in its emptiness he left gladly hastening like a flame stretched level on the wind with his black violin case he hurried down the street then halted to pity the flowers massed pallid under the gaslight of the market hall for himself the sea and the sunlight opened great spaces to-morrow the moon was full above the river he looked at it as a man in abstraction watches some clear thing then he came to a standstill it was useless to hurry to his train the traffic swung past the lamplight shone warm on all the golden faces but siegmund had already left the city his face was silver and shadows to the moon the river in its soft grey shaking golden sequins among the folds of its shadows fell open like a garment before him to reveal the white moon glitter brilliant as living flesh mechanically overcast with the reality of the moonlight he took his seat in the train and watched the moving of things he was in a kind of trance his consciousness seeming suspended the train slid out amongst lights and dark places siegmund watched the endless movement fascinated this was one of the crises of his life for years he had suppressed his soul in a kind of mechanical despair doing his duty and enduring the rest then his soul had been softly enticed from its bondage now he was going to break free altogether to have at least a few days purely for his own joy this to a man of his integrity meant a breaking of bonds a severing of blood ties a sort of new birth in the excitement of this last night his life passed out of his control and he sat at the carriage window motionless watching things move he felt busy within him a strong activity which he could not help slowly the body of his past the womb which had nourished him in one fashion for so many years was casting him forth he was trembling in all his being though he knew not with what all he could do now was to watch the lights go by and to let the translation of himself continue when at last the train ran out into the full luminous night and siegmund saw the meadows deep in moonlight he quivered with a low anticipation the elms great grey shadows seemed to loiter in their cloaks across the pale fields he had not seen them so before the world was changing the train stopped 
and with a little effort he rose to go home the night air was cool and sweet he drank it thirstily in the road again he lifted his face to the moon it seemed to help him in its brilliance amid the blonde heavens it seemed to transcend fretfulness it would front the waves with silver as they slid to the shore and helena looking along the coast waiting would lift her white hands with sudden joy he laughed and the moon hurried laughing alongside through the black masses of the trees he had forgotten he was going home for this night the chill wetness of his little white garden gate reminded him and a frown came on his face as he closed the door and found himself in the darkness of the hall the sense of his fatigue came fully upon him it was an effort to go to bed nevertheless he went very quietly into the drawing-room there the moonlight entered and he thought the whiteness was helena he held his breath and stiffened then breathed again to-morrow he thought as he laid his violin case across the arms of a wicker chair but he had a physical feeling of the presence of helena in his shoulders he seemed to be aware of her quickly half lifting his arms he turned to the moonshine to-morrow he exclaimed quietly and he left the room stealthily for fear of disturbing the children in the darkness of the kitchen burned a blue bud of light he quickly turned up the gas to a broad yellow flame and sat down at table he was tired excited and vexed with misgiving as he lay in his armchair he looked round with disgust the table was spread with a dirty cloth that had great brown stains betokening children in front of him was a cup and saucer and a small plate with a knife laid across it the cheese on another plate was wrapped in a red bordered fringed cloth to keep off the flies which even then were crawling round on the sugar on the loaf on the cocoa tin siegmund looked at his cup it was chipped and a stain had gone under the glaze so that it looked like the mark of a dirty mouth he fetched a glass of water the room was drab and dreary the oilcloth was worn into a hole near the door boots and shoes of various sizes were scattered over the floor while the sofa was littered with children's clothing in the black stove the ash lay dead on the range were chips of wood and newspapers and rubbish of papers and crusts of bread and crusts of bread and jam as siegmund walked across the floor he crushed two sweets underfoot he had to grope under sofa and dresser to find his slippers and he was in evening dress it would be the same while ever beatrice was beatrice 
and Siegmund her husband. He ate his bread and cheese mechanically, wondering why he was miserable, why he was not looking forward with joy to the morrow. As he ate, he closed his eyes, half wishing he had not promised Helena, half wishing he had no to-morrow. Leaning back in his chair, he felt something in the way. It was a small teddy bear, and half of a strong white comb. He grinned to himself. This was the summary of his domestic life, a broken, coarse comb, a child crying because her hair was lugged, a wife who had let the hair go till now, when she had got into a temper to see the job through and then the teddy bear pathetically cocking a black worsted nose and lifting absurd arms to him he wondered why gwen had gone to bed without her pet she would want the silly thing the strong feeling of affection for his children came over him battling with something else he sank in his chair and gradually his baffled mind went dark. He sat, overcome with weariness and trouble, staring blankly into the space. His own stifling roused him. Straightening his shoulders, he took a deep breath, then relaxed again. After a while he rose, took the teddy bear, and went slowly to bed. Gwen and Marjorie, aged nine and twelve, slept together in a small room. It was fairly light. He saw his favourite daughter lying quite uncovered, her wilful head thrown back, her mouth half open. Her black hair was tossed across the pillow. He could see the action. Marjorie snuggled under the sheet. He placed the teddy bear between the two girls. As he watched them, he hated the children for being so dear to him. Either he himself must go under and drag on an existence he hated, or they must suffer. But he had agreed to spend this holiday with Helena, and meant to do so. As he turned, he saw himself like a ghost cross the mirror. He looked back, he peered at himself. His hair still grew thick and dark from his brow. He could not see the grey at the temples. His eyes were dark and tender, and his mouth under the black moustache was full of youth. He rose, looked at the children, frowned and went to his own small room. He was glad to be shut alone in the little cubicle of darkness. Outside the world lay in a glamorous pallor, casting shadows that made the farm, the trees, the bulks of villas, look like live creatures. The same pallor went all through the night, glistening on Helena as she lay curled up asleep at the core of the glamour like the moon, on the sea rocking backwards and forwards till it rocked her island as she slept. She was so calm and full of her own assurance 
it was a great rest to be with her with her nothing mattered but love and the beauty of things he felt parched and starving she had rest and love like water and manner for him she was so strong in her self-possession in her love of beautiful things and of dreams the clock downstairs struck two i must get to sleep he said he dragged his portmanteau from beneath the bed and began to pack it when at last it was finished he shut it with a snap the click sounded final he stood up stretched himself and sighed i am fearfully tired he said but that was persuasive when he was undressed he sat in his pyjamas for some time rapidly beating his fingers on his knee thirty-eight years old he said to himself and disconsolate as a child he began to muse of the morrow when he seemed to be going to sleep he woke up to find thoughts labouring over his brain like bees on a hive recollections swift thoughts flew in and alighted upon him as wild geese swing down and take possession of a pond phrases from the opera tyrannized over him he played the rhythm with all his blood as he turned over in this torture he sighed and recognized a movement of the de berriot concerto which helena had played for her last lesson he found himself watching her as he had watched then felt again the wild impatience when she was wrong started again as amid the dipping and sliding of her bow he realized where his thoughts were going she was wrong he was hasty and he felt her blue eyes looking intently at him both started as his daughter vera entered suddenly she was a handsome girl of nineteen crossing the room brushing helena as if she were a piece of furniture in the way vera had asked her father a question in a hard insulting tone then had gone out again just as if helena had not been in the room helena stood fingering the score of peleas when vera had gone she asked in the peculiar tone that made siegmund shiver why do you consider the music of peleas cold siegmund had struggled to answer so they passed everything off without mention after helena's fashion ignoring all that might be humiliating and to her much was humiliating for years she had come as a pupil to siegmund first as a friend of the household then she and louisa went occasionally to whatever hall or theatre had siegmund in the orchestra so that shortly the three formed the habit of coming home together then helena had invited siegmund to her home then the three friends went walks together then the two went walks together 
whilst Louisa sheltered them. Helena had come to read his loneliness and the humiliation of his lot. He had felt her blue eyes heavily, steadily gazing into his soul, and he had lost himself to her. That day, three weeks before the end of the season, when Vera had so insulted Helena, the latter had said, as she put on her coat, looking at him all the while with heavy blue eyes, I think, Siegmund, I cannot come here any more. Your home is not open to me any longer. He had writhed in confusion and humiliation. As she pressed his hand, closely and for a long time, she said, I will write to you. Then she left him. Siegmund had hated his life that day. Soon she wrote. A week later, when he lay resting his head on her lap in Richmond Park, she said, You are so tired, Siegmund. She stroked his face and kissed him softly. Siegmund lay in the molten days of love. But Helena was, if it is not to debase the word, virtuous, an inconsistent virtue, cruel and ugly for Siegmund. You are so tired, dear. You must come away with me and rest, the first week in August. His blood had leapt, and whatever objections he raised, such as having no money, he allowed to be overridden. He was going to Helena, to the Isle of Wight tomorrow. Helena, with her blue eyes so full of storm like the sea, but also like the sea, so eternally self-sufficient, solitary, with her thick white throat, the strongest and most wonderful thing on earth, and her small hands, silken and light as wind-flowers, would be his tomorrow along with the sea and the downs. He clung to the exquisite flame which flooded him. But it died out, and he thought of the return to London, to Beatrice and the children. How would it be? Beatrice with her furious dark eyes and her black hair loosely knotted back came to his mind as she had been the previous day, flaring with temper, when he said to her, I shall be going away to-morrow for a few days' holiday. She asked for detail, some of which she gave. Then, dissatisfied and inflamed, she broke forth in her suspicion and her abuse and her contempt while two large-eyed children stood listening by. Siegmund hated his wife for drawing on him the grave, cold looks of condemnation from his children. Something he had said touched Beatrice. She came of good family, had been brought up like a lady, educated in a convent school in France. He evoked her old pride. She drew herself up with dignity, and called the children away. 
he wondered if he could bear a repetition of that degradation it bled him of his courage and self-respect in the morning beatrice was disturbed by the sharp sneck of the hall door immediately awake she heard his quick firm step hastening down the gravel path in her impotence discarded like a worn-out object she lay for the moment stiff with bitterness i am nothing i am nothing she said to herself she lay quite rigid for a time there was no sound anywhere the morning sunlight pierced vividly through the slits of the blind beatrice lay rocking herself breathing hard her fingernails pressing into her palm then came the sound of a train slowing down in the station and directly the quick chuff 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 of its drawing out beatrice imagined the sunlight on the puffs of steam and the two lovers her husband and helena rushing through the miles of morning sunshine god strike her dead mother of god strike her down she said aloud in a low tone she hated helena irene who lay with her mother woke up and began to question her end of chapter two Recording by Martin Giessen in Hazelmere, Surrey.